So at this point, what I'd like to do is I'd like to read the, the passage upon which uh, Tony's sermon will be based. And it's uh, from Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 24. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preach is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later I returned to Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him fifteen days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea and are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Glenn. We are uh, in the early stages of a new series on the book of Galatians, um, a pastoral letter written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul was a church planter, and after he became a Christian, uh, we're going to talk about how that happened, his response to Christ was to begin to travel around the Roman Empire and bring the gospel to Gentiles, that is, non-Jews outside of Israel. And he would tell them about the Jesus that he knew. And those who responded, he would gather together in people's homes and teach intensively until he had created a Christian church with leaders and structure. And then he would move on to the next city. And this particular letter was written to the churches that he had planted in Galatia. So it's more than one church. It was a network of churches. Galatia is what is today uh, Turkey, so this would have been the middle of Turkey. And the reason they're so interesting and so useful for us to look at is they deal with the practical problems of Christian life. Paul would teach them the basics, give them the gospel, essentially what we today have in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But then issues would arise. Questions would arise. Conflicts would arise. How do Christians live together? How do they solve problems together? And they would write a letter to Paul, their founder, and he would in turn reply to them, and that's what the letters that we have in the New Testament are. Paul's replies to letters sent to him by the churches they had planted. We saw last Sunday that there was a problem in Galatia. Paul begins this letter quite angry because although he has shared with them a pure gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ alone 
as the way to salvation, nothing else. The churches in Galatia had begun to drift. They'd begun to toy with the idea that it's not just Jesus, but it's also what we do. They'd started to take on the habits and patterns of life of Judaism. And so Paul sends this letter to remind them of the gospel, to bring the pure teaching of the Christian gospel, and to set them free from anything else. In fact, freedom, as we go through the letter, you'll see, is the great theme of this gospel, of this letter. So let's have a look at it. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. The Christian gospel is not an invention of men. It is supernatural. That is, it is from beyond this world. And therefore, it has a supernatural power. Christianity is not a philosophy. It's not a way of life or a collection of tips and advice. It's not how to get ahead or how to live a worthy life of meaning and purpose. It is good news, not good advice. And it claims to give the truth about everything. The foundational truth about the nature of the world. The nature of our relationship with our Creator. The purpose of human life. It is a worldview that encompasses everything. That's what Paul is stressing here. It's not another Greek philosophy. It's not another set of ideas to argue about. It is a revealed truth from God, not from men. And that means it has the power to supernaturally transform people. Not a new idea, but a power. The gospel contains within it a power to transform. And of course, Paul is the preeminent example of that. Verse 13. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the the church of God and tried to destroy it. If you read the New Testament after the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you get the book of Acts, which is the history book of the early church, and tells you what happened after Jesus returned to the Father. Particularly, it tells you a lot about Paul and his journeys, how he planted churches, how he behaved, and what he did. And it tells you how he began. In Acts chapter 7, It tells you about the persecution of the Christian church. And the first Christian martyr, Stephen, he was proclaiming the gospel, he was teaching about Jesus Christ, and he was accused of blasphemy. And he was brought before the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the temple in Jerusalem. And this is what happened. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, They heard that Stephen had been blaspheming or accused of blasphemy for preaching Jesus. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, 
full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is our Paul. Saul is his Hebrew name. Saul was also a Roman citizen, and so his Latin name was Paul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. There's Saul, an enemy of the Christian church, a persecutor of Christians, He didn't just put them in prison, by the way. He martyred a lot of the early Christians. And yet this same persecutor, this zealot in destroying the church, Saul, becomes Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles, the one who brings the gospel of grace to the world. What happened? Look at verse 14 and 15. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him amongst the Gentiles, and then he goes off and he starts preaching in Judea and Samaria. Paul had been a zealous religious man. But when he encountered God and God's grace and the revelation of Jesus, he became a gracious Christian man. He switched. He was transformed. His whole life changed direction. What happened to him? To understand, you you need to understand this distinction between what I'm calling religion and what I'm going to call the grace of the Christian gospel. Every human being has the same problem. Some might call it a predicament. Some might call it a question. It's a question that every one of us faces every Monday morning when we wake up. You're going to face it. I'm going to face it tomorrow. In fact, it's a question presented freshly to every human being on the planet every morning. Why am I here? Why do I wake up? Why do I exist? I think, therefore, I am. But why is there an I 
to am in the first place. Now, some of you will think when I wake up on Monday morning, I'm groggy and fed up and tired and fatigued, and this is just esoteric nonsense. But when you wake up, why do you eat? Why do you feed your kids? Why do you dress them and clothe them? So they will continue to exist. Why do you put a roof over their heads? To protect them. So they won't slip into non-existence. Our existence, the fact that we are, the fact that we're here, is the most significant thing about human beings. So why is it so? There's only really two possible answers. First, we're just cosmic accidents, and some people will claim that. The second is that something or somebody, some transcendent reality, gave us our existence, made us, created us. Now, that first idea, the idea that we are cosmic accidents, is a pretty new idea. In fact, you can date it quite accurately. 24th of November, 1859, Charles Darwin published Origin of Species. And it was the first plausible alternative to deliberate creation. But the second idea, the idea that we were given existence, that we were created, that is a universal and ancient idea that's been around as long as people have been people. In fact, every culture, every tribe, every people group that has ever been explored by anthropologists or have left any trace of their existence, they all leave trace of their religious practice. Now, why would that be? Well, if it's true, let's... let's for argument's sake, let's say that God exists or creator exists. And to use the Christian example, that he created heaven and earth and that he created each one of us so that we're not descendants of animals, we're not accidents, that he created us in his image. What does that mean? It means that we do not belong to ourselves. We didn't make ourselves. We are creations, creatures, belonging to our creator, God. And God doesn't seem like the kind of person who's just going to goof around. So probably, there's a very good reason we're created. We have a purpose. We have a meaning. We have a significance. So that's terrifying, if you think about it. Because if we were created... If we are made, then we can be unmade. If we upset our creator, he can ruin our crops with a drought, destroy them with hail. If if we have careers or retirement accounts, they can go away. He can decimate our livestock with disease. He can hurt our families, our friends. He can devastate the land with war, or with hurricanes, or with earthquakes. You better not get on the wrong side of someone who can create you. 
because you don't want them to be upset with you. You don't want to be unmade. And so what do people do? What have they done? From the beginning of recorded history, from the beginning of people, what has happened is people have created religions. Systems that are designed to keep them on good terms with their idea, whatever it is, of the creator. And by trying to control that relationship with the creator, try to control their relationship with the world. And that's what a religion basically is. It's a deal. I will do something nice for you, creator. I'll worship you. I'll sacrifice. I'll sacrifice time. I'll sacrifice money. Maybe my firstborn child. I'll wear funny clothing. I'll eat funny food. I'll obey arbitrary laws. I'll do whatever you want. And in exchange, you be nice to me. Make me rich. Make it rain. Cure my sickness. Protect my house. Smite my enemies. Whatever it is. And all the rules, festivals, sacrifices, habits, and practices of all religions are designed as part of that deal. They are acting out the deal or the covenant with God or the deity or the creator. A religion is a deal. I'll do this, and in return, you, God, do something for me. Now, Paul knew all about religion. Verse 14 again. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Paul calls himself a zealot. He spent his entire life learning the rules and rituals and behavior. In his letter to the Philippian church, he says this about himself. That I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. A faultless Pharisee is someone who does everything that is necessary to fulfill their part of the deal so that God, in return, will bless them. So they'll have all the benefits and none of the negatives of a creator. But for Paul, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough just for him to be perfect. The trouble with a religion is there's always more to do. Always more to prove how zealous you are, how much you believe, how much you're willing to sacrifice. To the point where he's willing not just to sacrifice himself and his time and energy, but he starts sacrificing people, Christians, to prove to God how worthy he is. And that's the trouble with all religions. If you have to prove yourself to God, in a world where there are hurricanes and crop failures and droughts, where there are wars and people do get hurt and beloveds do suffer disease, there's always going to be a call to do more and more and more. 
religions drive people to do things like kill others. Religions drive people to do crazy things. Because there's always more to do. Because in a broken world, there'll always be many ways that we get hurt. So what to do? For Paul, what happened next was the great miracle and transforming moment of his life. Because he encountered God, not a religious system, but a person. He talks about it in verse 15. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult with any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. In Acts, we know that what he immediately did was to go out and preach and plant churches and advance the kingdom. This hyper-religious, zealous Pharisee becomes the apostle of God's grace. What happened to him? What is the difference between religion, making deals with God, and the Christian gospel of grace? Well, notice what had happened to Paul. He'd been a persecutor, a killer of Christians. He terrified the early church so that they scattered out of Jerusalem. And yet the God he encounters on the road to Damascus forgives him. And not forgives him into some kind of second-class state, but makes him the primary apostle of his gospel to the world. And notice, God doesn't do this because of some kind of deal. It is not because Paul did the right thing. He was doing the very opposite of right. What does it say? When God was pleased. Why did God choose Paul? Because God wanted to choose Paul. Not because Paul was worthy. Not because Paul was some exemplar of Christian faith and practice. God does not choose us or love us because we are serviceable. Because we've got it all together. Because we've done the right thing. Because we've performed the right prayers or rituals. That we've been to the right number of festivals. God's love is gracious. It's such a key part of Christianity. Gracious love. What is gracious love? Unmerited love. God loves because he chooses to love. Because he is love. Not because Christians are lovable. Paul certainly was not lovable. And when that sinks in, that you have a relationship with God through grace, it completely changes the motivations of your life. Now, there's many ways of talking about it. My favorite way is uh, an illustration that I heard in the early days of my Christian career. 
So imagine there's a camping trip. And a family is going to go deep into the woods. And the family is going along with uh, some servants. And they're going to go camping. So night is coming. And the father, the father in this case is God. Father says to his son and to the servants, go out and get some wood. It's going to freeze tonight. If we don't have a fire, we're going to freeze to death. Go out and chop some wood so that we can have a fire and we can stay warm. And he says this to the son and to the servants. Now, what are the motivations of the servants and the sons? The servants have to go. If they don't do their job, they're going to be out. They're going to be fired. They have to go and chop wood out of duty, out of fear, out of fear of punishment, being fired. There is a dread to their service to the father. I better get it done, otherwise I'm going to lose my job. That's religion. Do the right thing, otherwise you're out. You're going to suffer. You're going to be punished. What about the son? What's the son's motivation? Well, the son is the son. He's in the family. That's his father. And he knows that no matter what he does, he'll never be thrown out. Because his father loves him. He's he's his son. He's in the family. No matter what he does, he'll never, ever be thrown out. And so he could say, well, it doesn't matter. Even if I don't chop the wood, I know the father who loves this family will make sure there is wood, even if he has to chop it himself. So I've got nothing to fear, and I've got nothing to worry about tonight. My father's going to take care of me regardless. And he could say that. Or, that would be a rebellious son, by the way. Or, the son could recognize that he is loved, that the father loves him and trusts him. And in love and trust, the father is inviting the son to participate in the father's work of taking care of the family. The son can now choose out of pure love to serve the family, to chop the wood. doesn't have to do it. No dread, no fear, just the knowledge that he is a beloved son. Now, which motivation do you think can transform a human heart? The religious dread or the loving father? And which one did Paul meet on the road to Damascus? But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I might preach the gospel, might preach him among the Gentiles. God revealed his son. In doing so, he revealed to Paul that he was his father. And he invited Paul to join him, to become part of the family business, to be about the business of spreading the gospel. And this is what transformed Paul's life. The Christian gospel 
is a gospel based on relationship, based on recognizing that God is our Father, that we have been invited into the family, that we are completely safe, but that we can now begin to serve out of love. That is the kind of motivation that is going to transform your life. It'll be a life that is not driven. It'll be a life that has humility. It'll be a life that can have compassion for people who don't believe. It can be a life of generosity. Because sharing the Father's love doesn't mean you're loved any less. It is the life that transformed the world through the Christian church. And it's what made Paul such a successful apostle. Look at the end of this letter, verse 21. Later I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. That transformation, the power of the transforming gospel, is what they praise God for. What happened to Paul? Paul fell in love. He realized that he could live not based on a foundation of fear, but live based on a foundation of inclusion and love of God's family. And that's what he brought to the world to share. He spent the rest of his life doing it. And the Christian gospel spread like wildfire because of this transformation. We'll be exploring that as we go along. But right now, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you reveal yourself as our Father through Christ. And that as we understand our relationship to you through him, we are transformed because we are saved, safe forever in your hands. Lord, may that indeed be the foundation of our lives together. May that be the reason that we get up every Monday morning. May that be the way that we can live without fear in your good world. We pray for that truth in Jesus' name. Amen.